Welcome to the hills. And usually I begin my message by saying, I greet all of you at the North Richmond Hills campus, the West Fort Worth campus, the South Lake campus, and all of you that are watching online. But I can't do that today because everybody is watching online. And I am so glad that you are. And I just want to begin by thanking my Hills Church family for understanding why we are adapting to the current reality and meeting at homes today instead of our campuses. And I have not received one single complaint or criticism from a member of our church about our decision to do so. In fact, I've only received one criticism from a person at all, and that was from someone in a different state who saw what we were doing and let me know that he disagreed because, as he put it, the bars haven't closed, the brothels haven't closed. Why have the churches closed? Well, I have a couple of problems with that logic. Number one, I don't think the brothels are asking the question, what does Jesus want us to do, okay? I don't think the brothels are thinking, how can we best love and serve our community? But my bigger problem is his understanding of church. You see, he's assuming, well, if you don't go somewhere, you can't be the church. Church is not a place you go. Church is who we are. Church is not an activity one day a week. Church is our identity Every day of the week. We have not canceled being the church. We've just transitioned where we're having our worship services on this particular day. We're going to continue to love God and love our neighbor. We're going to continue to try to make and grow followers of Jesus. We're going to have marvelous ways in the days ahead to be the church. And so, again, thank you for understanding. And I look forward to how God is going to use the church in these days. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of the family of God. So I'm going to go ahead with my regular teaching because we're still just being the Hills Church. And we're going to talk this morning about how to be a part of the family of God. Have you ever been received into sonship? Now, of course, if you're a male, the moment you were born, you were someone's biological son. But have you ever been given the right of sonship? So when I proposed to my wife, she accepted, but she said, you need to go to San Antonio and ask my father for my hand. Now, at this point, I'd been preaching for several years. I had a job. My car was paid for. I think I'm an adult. I don't need anyone's permission to get married. Why do I need to do that? So we're driving to San Antonio having this debate. And so I said, here's my compromise, Jamie. At the meal tonight, if your father leads the prayer, I will know that's a sign that after the meal, I should ask for your hand. But if he says, Rick, will you bless the food? I will bless the food, and then I will pray, and dear Lord, please bless our upcoming marriage. See, I had figured my odds were in my favor, because I can tell you, when you're a preacher, you always lead the prayer at the family gatherings. And so sure enough, we're sitting around the table for supper. Her father asked me to say the prayer. I bowed my head, dear Lord. And in that moment, under the table, I felt a vice grab me above my knee and cut off my circulation. Yes, sweet little Jamie did that to me. So I just blessed the food, and afterwards I asked James Lida if I could marry his daughter. But you see, I was really doing two things. I was asking if Jamie could be my bride, but I was also asking if I could be his son. Would they receive me as a son? And for all the years that they lived, James and Bobby Lida treated me, welcomed me as a son in 
the family. Now, this is the issue that the book of Galatians is wrestling with. Who gets to rightly consider themselves to be the children of God? Now, you might think, well, aren't all people children of God? In a sense of creation, they are. Every person's made in the image of God. That's why at the Hills Church, we argue from the womb to the tomb, every single human being should be treated with dignity and respect because they bear the image of God. In, that, in the sense of creation, all are his children, but not in the sense of who's invited to the table and who is in the will. Paul said in Ephesians that some are by nature children of wrath, that John says that some are children of the devil. Now, that sounds strong, but John was standing next to Jesus when Jesus pointed to some religious leaders and said, you belong to your father, the devil. So intimacy with the father depends on confessing the identity of the father's beloved son. John was one of the four people that wrote an account of the life of Jesus. And he starts his gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus went to his own, the Jewish people, and many rejected him. But then he has this wonderful addition in verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this was the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatian people. That if you believe and accept Jesus, you have the right to consider yourself a part of the family of God. The reason we have the book of Galatians is because after Paul left, some people from Jerusalem without authority came to those churches and said, Paul did not tell you the whole story. Now, Paul refers to them as the Judaizers, but here's what I want you to understand. No Jewish person in the first century that accepted Jesus felt like they converted. They didn't feel like they changed religions. They would have argued, we're fulfilled Jews now. We have been waiting for our Messiah for centuries, and now he has come, and we have accepted him. And so they weren't saying that Gentiles could not become a part of the family of God. They were saying, you must become a fulfilled Jew first. Uh, you must learn about our dietary customs. You must learn about our ceremonies. And most of all, you need to be circumcised. And that's what we're wrestling with in the book of Galatians. What must you do to be considered a son or daughter of God? Now, in our text last week, Paul took them back to the story of Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're going to start now in chapter 3, verse 15. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. And this is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a 
promise. Okay, so let's stop a moment. Some are arguing, we know, Paul, that God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. But then later he gave the law. So the law are the terms by which you get to inherit the promise. And Paul says it doesn't work that way. You can't add terms to a will that has already been ratified. Let's suppose that your parents are alive and you happen to know that you are in their will. They want you to receive part of their estate. And should they pass in the future and you're sitting in a room with a judge and the real is wet and the judge says, so this is the part of their estate they want you to inherit and you get it after you go back to college and you get accepted into med school with a 3.9 GPA. Now, wait a second, judge. You can't do that. Yes, I can. I represent the law. No, you don't get to add terms to an already ratified will. That's what Paul is saying. Now, you might be thinking, well, what was the purpose of the law then? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked. Your coffee is working this morning. So let's read. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we were all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And we're about to read chapter 4, but here's the point he's making is that The promise comes through faith. And we don't need the law anymore to inherit what God has promised. He keeps up that thought. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. So that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, 
Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now, I've said before, sometimes it seems like Paul likes the law. Sometimes it seems like it doesn't. Well, it depends on what you want the law to do. See, Paul makes it clear the law was intended to be a bracketed experience. It was to have a start and it was to have a finish. It was given to protect and guide the children of God until the way of faith was revealed. But that way of faith has been revealed. The promise has been kept. The son has been sent. And therefore, Paul insists to stay under the law would be a sign of spiritual infancy. Here's what he's saying. It's immature children who obey because of law. Now, all of us who are parents understand law is the best way to discipline or to protect the immature. What we say to our kids when they're little, now you can play in the yard, but if I catch you playing in the street, you will get a spanking. We say, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to put you in timeout. We use law to govern the behavior of the immature. So Paul says law was useful as long as we were kids. And law served a purpose. And I'm fine with law as long as you understand the purpose for which it was given. You see, he says two things. First, the law served as a fence. In other words, it serves to keep the sinful nature in check through threats and through consequences. But here's the thing. It doesn't reform character. It just restrains evil. Look again at verse 23. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. This is what law does. It governs and protects us from our worst behavior. This is why you don't speed badly. Now, don't tell me you don't speed, okay? Uh, I can't see you, but God can, all right? But the reason we don't speed badly is because there's a law. That's what the government does. It gives us laws so that we can live civilly and not have chaos in our world. We don't speed badly, not because we're thinking about the welfare of our neighbor, but because we don't want a ticket. And that's what law does. It doesn't change our nature. It simply cages our nature. And so the law served as a fence, and then the law served as a mirror. See, most people think, well, I'm good, and good people should go to heaven. And the reason we think we're good is because we compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses. But then the law gives us the mirror of God's holiness. And we look into the law, and we realize we fall short, that all fall short of the glory of God. Look again at verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their Sins. The purpose of the law was never to save sinners. It was to show sinners that they need to be saved. And that's what Paul means when he says at the right time, God sent the Son. He doesn't mean that's when the Romans had built all their roads and there was one universal language. God doesn't need roads to get the gospel to the world. What he means is God gave the law a sufficient amount of time to convince us 
that it can't fix us. The law has a 1,000-year track record of failure at fixing what is broken in us. And so the law did exactly what it was supposed to do. Show us that we are sinners in need of grace. There's nothing we can do to place us into the family of God. God is going to have to do something himself. And the good news is the way of faith came. And because that way came, three things are now true. The first is we are now accepted through Christ. You realize we couldn't become legal heirs until the legal demands of the law against us were satisfied. The law brought legitimate charges against us that we could not remove by any amount of effort. God had to do something. So, you've heard me say that grace is free. Don't ever interpret that to mean that grace is cheap. Here's what I mean. Romans chapter 8. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, we're all prodigals. And we can all be welcomed into the family of God by believing that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our insufficiencies. We don't have to earn our right to be heirs. We just have to receive our rights as heirs. So it's 1960. Presidential campaign goes to West Virginia. John F. Kennedy is running as a Democrat. A coal miner comes up to him and says, Is it true that you are the son of one of the richest men in the nation? And Kennedy replies, that is true, sir. Is it true you've never done a hard day's work in your life with your hands? That's also true, sir. That minor leaned in. So let me tell you something, son. You haven't missed a thing, okay? I haven't missed a thing by receiving my sonship and my inheritance as an heir. Look again at what Paul says. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he adds, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your ethnicity is not what puts you at the table. Your status didn't get you the right to be a son or daughter. Your gender didn't make you closer or farther from God. It was your faith in Jesus. We have a place at the table because we decided to trust in the one that took our place. And how did we express that faith and trust? Well, right in between, there was a really important verse. I want you to look at it. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. I'm sometimes asked by people, I believe in Jesus. Do I need to be baptized? And I understand behind the question is, aren't we, aren't we saved by faith? You see, I think it's significant in the strongest Statement in all the New Testament that we're saved by faith and not by works. Paul just assumes we're going to get baptized. He just assumes it. 
If you would have asked a first century Christian, do you need to get baptized? They'd have asked, what do you, I don't, I don't get the question. Jesus was baptized and Jesus said to go baptize and I followed Jesus and I don't, I don't get the question. You see, in their mind, baptism was not an addition to faith. It was an expression of faith. In my baptism, I'm publicly declaring I trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save me, to rescue me. You ever thought how passive you are in baptism? You don't do anything. It's done to you. It's completely consistent with the way of faith. And so because we trust, we are accepted through Christ. And that means that we can be adopted by God. And this is big. You know, Christians have a special name for God that other religions don't have. Father. No other world religion calls God Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people didn't call God Father. Why do Christians call God Father? Because Jesus taught us to. 170 times in the Gospels, he called God Father. 21 times in his prayers. In fact, sometimes he would even pray and call God Abba. You see, a little Hebrew baby, when he was learning to talk, would repeat syllables. And the Hebrew word for Father is Av. Avraham is the father of the nations. That little baby, as he was learning to talk, would look up and he would say, Ava, Ava. And that's how Jesus spoke to God. Jesus taught us to view God as our daddy because he came to make a place for us. He came on a mission to get us into the family. Look again at verse 5. God sent him. To buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Now, I've got to tell you, there are some many beautiful metaphors for salvation in the Bible. My favorite is adoption. Most of you know I am an adoptive father. My oldest two children, Michael and Morgan, we adopted. And then... Several years later, what the doctors said could never happen, happened, and Jamie got pregnant. And my daughter, Morgan, about four at the time, I never will forget two things. Number one, she insisted that we have a boy. And we said, Morgan, it could be a boy, it could be a girl. God decides that. Either way, we're going to love it. And we would pray for a healthy baby, and she would always add, and make it a brother. And I guess it shows you that God responds to the faith of children. But the second thing she kept asking is, are we going to adopt this baby? And we would say, no, we don't plan to adopt the baby. And we got to adopt this baby. And Michael would try to explain, Morgan, uh, someone had to put us into the right family, but this baby is going to be born into the right family. And she would get angry and she would growl, we're going to adopt this baby. And finally we understood that little Morgan had been told the story many times how she grew in another mother's tummy. And she thought that's the way it works. You grow in one person's tummy and then they take you and they put you in another family. And she wasn't giving up this baby. So after Matthew was born, about a week later, we got our family together in our living room. We got in a circle and we all said, Do we, are we going to love this baby? Are we going to teach this baby to love God? Do we all want to adopt this baby? And we did and we never heard another word. Here's the point. You don't accidentally adopt. Now you can unintentionally get pregnant, but you don't accidentally adopt. 
You plan to adopt. Adoptions happen because parents make a choice, not children. And that leads to one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I'm going to tell you, if you're an adopted dad, you can't read that and not get emotional. This is what God wanted to do. It gave God such joy to rescue us and bring us into his family. He chose you long before you chose him. He decided to rescue you from the deepest pit of your sin and place you in the highest place next to his son as a co-heir. And God wants so much for you to know that you're in the family now. You know what he did? Well, it says we're accepted through Christ, adopted by God, and anointed with his spirit. And why does God anoint us with his spirit? Because God knows the enemy is going to be trying to plant thoughts in our mind to question our legitimacy. The enemy will do everything he can to make you think you don't really belong. That the father might abandon you. The father might kick you out of the family. So you know what the father did? He took the worst of us and put it on Christ. And then he took the best of himself and he put it inside us. And it says in verse 6, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is God's announcement to the entire spiritual world that we belong to him. And his spirit speaks the so, same message to our own hearts. I, and more and more, I'm thinking as a, as a pastor who loves his church, if I could pray one thing over you, it would be that you would learn to hear the Holy Spirit. That you would have greater capacity to hear the comfort and the assurance of the Spirit. Recently, a, a woman was addressing me, and she was comparing me to a well-known Christian figure. And I don't think she meant to, but she was actually rather insulting, noting how he had many awesome qualities that I do not possess. And even as she spoke, I heard the Holy Spirit say inside, I love you just as you are. And I believe that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to all of us. It bolsters our confidence and our faith in the promises of God, especially when life gets hard. So Paul talks about how the creation's broken. Sin has taken the world God made and turned it into something else. That's why there's earthquakes and tsunamis and pandemics. He says the whole creation is groaning for its redemption. And then he adds this. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. 
For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. Oh, the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have a good, good Father. And it changes everything. When we stop viewing God as some judge who's angry that we can't keep all the law, and we view God as a Father who paid the ultimate price so that He could adopt us. When I was in middle school, I reached that age, I guess some boys reach, where you just think it's time to challenge your dad, to show that you're your own man. My chore was every week to mow the yard. And I decided that week, I'm not going to mow the yard. I didn't mow it on Monday. I didn't mow it on Tuesday. I didn't mow it all week. My dad, after he got off work on Friday, came to my room and asked why I had not mowed the yard. And I bucked my self up and said, I don't want to mow the yard. I'm not going to mow the yard. And I figured there'd be a consequence. I figured there would be a penalty and I was ready to pay it. And my father, I'll never forget, just looked at me and said, son, you've gotten too old for me to expect you to obey me because I can punish you. From now on, you're going to have to decide if you're going to obey me. Because you love me. You walked away. And five minutes later, I was outside mowing the yard. You see, I don't obey God because I'm afraid of being punished. I obey because I delight in my dad. I have such a good dad. Immature children obey because of law. Mature children Obey because of love. God wants children that want to obey Him, not slaves that have to obey Him. God wants one big, happy family. And He wants you to be a part of it. So I've always contended that you can tell when someone was born by asking them what was their favorite movie when they were a little kid for Michael it was some dinosaur movie called Land Before Time it wasn't that great for Morgan it was The Little Mermaid which all sensible people will admit was one of the ten greatest movies in history and for Matthew it was The Lion King he must have watched that movie 200 times And there's a scene where Mufasa, the daddy lion, looks at Simba and says, in the perfect James Earl Jones voice, Remember, you are my son. And little Matthew, three and four years old, would run around the house in his little boy voice, and he would say, Mimba, you are my son. And I thought, that's pretty good theology. Don't let the enemy tell you who you are. You remember that you are the son and the daughter of God. You didn't earn your way to the table. God made the way 
for you to be there. And he has promised you an inheritance. And church family, right now, the world needs the witness of a people who aren't walking in fear and dread and panic because we believe there's no way our Father's going to abandon us. That not death or life, past or present, not demons, not even disease can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance. We're already tasting it now. And it just gets better. And so let's take a moment and thank our dad. So, Father, in the powerful name of Jesus, we come to you today. And we thank you for bringing us home. For making a way for us to be at the table. For setting us beside Christ as co-heir. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Only an almost unfathomable love could make this our story. But it is our story and we believe it. And we ask for your help to, to better hear the Holy Spirit prompting us to trust our new status as children of God. Help us in these days ahead to walk in peace, to walk in non-anxious ways, to give witness to the hope that we have because our inheritance is sure. Nothing can cancel what you have done to bring us home. And so again, we just want to say, thanks, Dad. Thanks so much. Amen.